You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. These verses hit on some heavy topics. One of the heavy topics they deal with is death. Death isn't far from any of us. You don't have to live or love very long in this life to feel the pain and the finality of death. I remember the first time I felt this. I was uh, in middle school. I had moved to a new school. I got befriended by a guy on the football team named Chris Young. Brought me into the friend circle. He didn't have to, but he was just kind to a new, scared kid. But suddenly, Chris would get pretty sick. He had undiagnosed cancer. He couldn't be treated and would die within about a year. Later in life, a death that still sticks with me in college is when Jamarcus died of heart failure at a pickup game of basketball. And I remember being at the hospital and with all of our friends and just in shock of our healthy friend now in a hospital bed with his family arriving and not making it. I tell those stories just to say, I know you have them too. Your friends, your family people we've loved, people we've lost. We lose people in predictable ways and unpredictable ways. And as a pastor, death is a frequent topic in my life. It's a frequent occasion in my life. And it's my privilege to be with people on some of the very worst days of their life. It's truly a gift. And when it comes to death, we can't help but think, what happens next? What happens when the lights turn out for us or for those we love? And there's three kind of worldly reactions to death, and they all actually have the same root cause. One way to deal with death in this life is we can try to outrun death with experiences. Try to get the most out of life, kind of a YOLO, put ourselves first. Say, I'm just going to do it all. I'm just going to run till my heart gives out. There's a second way to ignore death. It just becomes all too much to consider seriously. And so we kind of pretend it doesn't happen. We act shocked all over again every time death rears its ugly head. There's a third way where the pain of it all can just be so much that we start to lose the will to keep living. And we slowly become a shell of who we once were. And the root of all these reactions is fear that the fear of death itself is so big that Scripture claims it enslaves us all. Listen to Hebrews 2 with me. Because God's children are human beings, made made of flesh and blood, we are all made of flesh and blood. The Son, Jesus, also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being he could die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Fear itself of dying enslaves us to live. But Jesus has come as a man to die for us to forgive our sins and set us free from the fear of death, breaking the power of the devil, breaking his back to wield that fear over your life. 
The devil wants us to live in fear of death instead of fear of God. The devil doesn't, doesn't care if you react to fear by living wild or living distracted or living muted. He doesn't care what that reaction is. He just cares that you don't fear God and that you fear the pain of death instead. The devil doesn't want you to find life and hope in Jesus. He doesn't want you to read Ephesians 1 like we're reading today and last week and gain a hope in God because Ephesians 1 teaches us that the gospel gives us an actual future. That we can know what happens beyond the veil. That we can be certainty that death isn't the end but a beginning because of what the gospel has done for us. And it's why the gospel changes everything and makes all the difference. Look at verse 11. It's called an inheritance here. In him, that's in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That in him means in Christ. Those who believe in Christ have obtained something. There is something that is now ours. And that something is a hope and a future. And when we hear the word inheritance, we think of things passed down to us, maybe by relatives, maybe by parents at death. Maybe it's a house, maybe it's land, maybe it's money or special items in the family. And they get passed down to us. But inheritance here is an interesting word. And the phrasing here can mean two things. First, it can mean that we're part of God's inheritance. We are a people of God's own possession, that God has made us his, that he owns us to be with us forevermore, that we kind of become a part, literally, of this household of God forevermore. And it's an idea all over the Old Testament, even present right here in this book, that our inheritance is to become part of God's family in a very real way. But inheritance also can be taken a second way. As 1 Peter 1.4 puts it, it alludes to this inheritance being very much heaven itself, that after death, that we will be with God in heaven. And Jesus also speaks of heaven this way. He, in John 14.2, he says this, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And you see, the second sense of heaven is a physical, spiritual place that you will physically, spiritually be one day with your resurrected body received back to you to dwell with God forevermore. And I think the author means both of these things, that we literally become this part of God's household, never to be removed, but also that we will be with God and there's a physical kind of land inheritance waiting for you and I. That for the Christian, death is simply not the end. But you have been given a real future, a real hope that's pulling us through this life. Which means for the Christian, we're truly heading home. And that each day we do grow closer to this home. And when life is good, that sounds kind of morbid to say, that each day we march closer. But let me tell you the truth, when life is bad, that's the drumbeat of hope in the recesses of our soul. When we ourselves are grieving in this life, when things are not turning out how you wish, the idea that we're going home and each day we step closer becomes a drumbeat in our soul. 
There's a reason why Ash Wednesday is filled with people who've suffered great loss. And the idea of heaven even can feel so abstract that when we die, we'll be with God and receive back in resurrection. But look what God gives us to encourage us, to strengthen us, to seal us for that day and to start to burn that hope brightly deep in your soul that fear doesn't dominate you, but something else can, that God actually loves you. Verse 13 and 14 tell us this. In him, once again, in Christ, used over 200 times in the New Testament to describe what the gospel does. It brings us into Christ, into Jesus. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, what's the word of truth? Well, it's the gospel of your salvation. The world is filled with lies, but the gospel is true. And you believed in him. What's believe? It means that you put your trust, your hope, your faith in Christ. You take it out of your sin. You take it out of idols. You take it out of this world and you put it into God. When you believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the promise of the Spirit. Song of Solomon puts it as burned onto our heart like a brand. You were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Lord is aware that it doesn't feel like we're in heaven yet. He is aware that things are hard. He is aware that things are broken. He's aware that I'm losing my hair and our body's breaking down. He's aware. But he's given us something to pull us forward and make us sure that we have obtained a salvation that's going somewhere. That there's a real future for you. And he does it until we inquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We've been freed from the fear of death and been given a gift of the Holy Spirit himself. Now, I say Holy Spirit. I know some of y'all kind of shiver and shudder a little bit because maybe you grew up in a church where it was like, Father, Son, Holy Slumber, where you rarely talked about them. And others y'all grew up in church, it was more like my experience coming of Christ, of like, Holy Spirit, finally, Justin, we're talking. Let's go, all right? Come on. And some of y'all are new to this church thing altogether. Yes, amen. And some of y'all are new to this church thing altogether, and you're like, man, I think, isn't it like Father, Son, House of Gucci? Or like, how's that work? And that's Lady Gaga. That is not Ephesians, guys. But look at what Paul's doing. In Ephesians 1, he is teaching us about how the God of the Trinity has actually saved us. Look what he's doing. He says, the Father has planned it, planned our salvation from eternity past. That was last week, verses 3 through 6. The Son has redeemed us by grace through his blood. That's verses 7 through 10. And bang, this week, the Holy Spirit seals us and guarantees to bring us home. Salvation is a work of all of God, saving all of you for all of eternity. That's why the gospel is the emphasis here at Citizens. It's not just a little part of our faith. It's the center of our faith that helps us understand all the other parts of our faith. And the Trinity is one of these unique parts of our faith against any other religion. There's a lot of religions that can claim little parts of our faith. You know what they can't claim? This wild idea only found in the Bible that there's one God who's actually three. 
that we worship a singular God who's also three distinct persons, yet they're all God, working together, bobbing and weaving like a basketball team in perfect harmony together. We're told that that's how God saves you. It's not like a minor story. This is God himself in history working to save us and bring us home so that we can be sure about that future isn't like a cast-off promise, but a main promise that we will be with God, just like Adam and Eve were with God in the garden. It's coming all the way back, church, and he's going to dwell in the garden city with us. And we're told the Spirit in this passage does two distinct things that matter to our salvation. First, that we're sealed by the Spirit. And we don't use that language very much. We just don't. We talk about like sealing a door or seals in the ocean. This is talking about like a king putting his wax on a letter or a contract and taking his signet ring and stamping it on the letter to say whatever this letter says is now law forever. If you got a letter from the king, it better have a seal seal, or it was a false letter back in the day. And Paul is saying, God has sealed us. He has used his power, his name, his office, the penalty Christ paid to pay for us that we belong to our loving king now and forever. That we're graven on his hand. That we're marked in love as his. When God sees us, he sees his people. Not a people of wrath, but a people that's a part of his family. So when the devil or lies try to tell you that you don't belong, that because what you've done or what you've said or what you've sinned, that you don't belong, or you feel far from God, or maybe you're with God's people and you don't feel like you belong, don't let the devil win. The most important thing of belonging to God and his people is that you are sealed with the Spirit of God. That's what makes a Christian. It's a gospel that's redeemed us. That's the deepest, truest thing about being a person redeemed by God. It's not about what we wear. It's not about how we talk. It's not about what we look like. We are God's people that Christ is sealed by the very Spirit of God living in us that we are to belong to Jesus. He's our hope both now and forevermore. Why would I trust God with my future and not trust him in my present? They go together. And second, this passage teaches us that the spirit is a promised spirit that has come whose guarantee of a promised future to come. Paul tells us the spirit's been promised. And what he's referencing is these killer promises in the Old Testament like Joel 2 or Ezekiel 36, that were said hundreds of years before Jesus, hundreds of years before this letter to the Ephesians. And I want to look at Ezekiel 36. This is a monster promise of the Old Testament. This is what God said through Ezekiel. He says, I will take you from the nations. Look at this. He's expanding, say, every nation on earth, not just the Jewish ethnically people, but everyone. I will take from the nations and I will gather you from all countries, and I will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. 
What's the Spirit do? I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. God had long promised the Spirit and delivered on it. In Acts 2, the Spirit falls. The Spirit isn't just for special prophets or kings or heroes, but suddenly the Spirit is for everyone, men and women, young and old. Anyone who follows Jesus receives the Spirit at belief. And it's a Spirit that takes their heart of stone, gives them a heart of flesh that wants to obey, that empowers them to obey. You get a new affection that you actually love God. No longer just the law of God that's guarding you and guiding you and informing you about God, but an actual spirit that makes your heart beat and long for more of God, that makes you want to obey. And he mentions it as a promise spirit because if God made true on that promise, then he's using the same spirit to say, hey, I promise you an inheritance. And if I've been true on this promise to give you the spirit, surely I'll be true on this promise that the inheritance is coming whether it feels like it today or not. That the inheritance is sure. And that's what it means by guarantee. He's guaranteeing it, not just by his word, which is amazing and powerful and true, but also by his very being. God is saying, I am on the line pulling you forward to this inheritance. And that word guarantee also means literally down payment. That when you believe God gives you the spirit of God inside you as a down payment on the house that will be true one day. Just like a mortgage works today. You buy a house, you put down a small percent, maybe it's 5%, the bank finances the rest. And if you make your mortgage payments for 15 or 30 years or whatever, you get to own the house. But in this financial equation, God has already bought the house for you. He's already bought your spot in heaven. He's already bought you to become a member of his household. He's already adopted you into the family. And he's given you a spirit, the down payment, which he paid into your heart. So it's not up to your effort. It's not up to your will. But when you believe the spirit comes and lives inside of you. And yes, we want to obey because we love God. Not that we're trying to prove something to him. God is not impressed with us. He's impressed with Jesus. And the more we dive into God already being impressed, God already loving us and liking us because of Jesus, remember he's the God who created us. That's where we start to flourish to obey God with all of our heart. Because that's what he's looking for. Remember the greatest commandment when they asked Jesus? To love God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. If you wonder what God's will for your life is, it's that to increase throughout your life through loving others and many things, but really affection for God. I pray at night that citizens would be a people of wild love for God over anything else. I want you to be enthralled with the love of God because as scripture says, he loved us first, best, last, and always. And let that spirit burn inside you to know that your inheritance is real, that this isn't a myth, but it's true.
God was true to his promise to bring the Spirit, and he will be true to bring us an inheritance. And we have this future, as Paul keeps reminding us, we have this future because of the will of God. He actually mentions it four separate times in these first 11 verses to increase our comfort and our confidence in God. Look what it says. It's crazy how much he brings it up. He starts the letter, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Verse five, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Verse nine, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. Verse 11, where we are today, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And I know I brought up God's will and I saw your face and I know how how that works in, in life, that I know the will of God can be a monster struggle. Few people hear, oh, the will of God, and immediately start panicking over not knowing what the will of God is, how much it's struggled to make a decision, and I'm there with you, team. I've been on my knees with you, team. I've been at lunch with you, team. There are a few things I've met with people more about than the will of God in their life, and those are good meetings. You know why they're great meetings? Because A, this person takes God serious, which is a win. That's great. They want to follow God in a major life decision. Also great. The third thing, yet there's usually great confusion, frustration, and anxiety on what the process of knowing God's will actually looks like. And that can be rather painful. That can be really frustrating. But often this confusion can lead to some unhelpful and unbiblical thoughts about God and his will. Sometimes when we get to that moment trying to make a decision, we start to think the will of God must be confusing or difficult to discern as if God's a trickster. We can start thinking the will of God is primarily a fearful or scary thing that if we get wrong, God's a harsh judge or maybe he's out to get us. We can start thinking that the will of God is supposed to be a source of frustration that so God must not care maybe he's holding out on me and Paul is teaching the very opposite through these verses Paul is teaching us God's not a trickster he he came up with and made a plan to save you if anything he's like a surpriser with salvation to us it's the opposite of a trickster these verses you see God's not a harsh judge, but the only just judge who's so merciful he would judge his son in our place. I want to judge like that. And we see God's not holding out. Instead, he's given his very spirit to us so he can be close with us and never leave us and guide us all the way home. That our Trinitarian God isn't someone to start saying he's a trickster, but he's the only one we can deeply trust. Like all the way, we practice trust with each other. We grow in trust with each other, but there's only one being ever who's never sinned. It's a God who came for you and me. If there's anyone to trust, if there's anyone to push the chips in for, it's the God who pushes life in for you and then sent his spirit to help you home. God's not holding out on us. The will of God can become a source of humble confidence knowing our final destination. No matter what happens, if I know the final destination, I can have a humble confidence about struggles in life. 
The will of God can become a source of steadfast comfort because I know God has come near in his spirit and he ain't going to leave me. And I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking, that's great, Justin. Um, But like, I want God's help with like, should I marry Bill or Mary? I got some no's. If someone is dating a Mary, apparently a small conference needs to happen in this area. (laughs) Should I take this job? Or some of you, if you're kind of like me in college, like, Lord, should I order the burrito? If so, steak, chicken, carnitas. And often when we ask these questions of God, we're asking for God's will of direction. We're actually asking for God's will of direction. And to borrow a framework from a pastor named Kevin DeYoung, who has an excellent little book on this, it's more helpful to think of God's will in three different ways. God's will is big and complex, but we can know how it works a little bit here. There's actually three ways to think of it. One is God's will of decree. God's will is for you to obey God's word. We know God's will. It's revealed in his word. There's a certain way God wants you to live. In the macro, loving God and loving others, but also in the micro, do not lie. Fair enough. He does not want you to lie. That is a revealing of his will. Second way to think of God's will is God's will of desire. God's will is for you to follow Jesus with joy. Someone might say is God's will is for you to grow increasingly holy and happy in Jesus for the rest of your life. So once you think about the decree, you come to a decision, you think, okay, uh, decree, I should not pick these morally wrong things. I should pick things that obey scripture. Second question, um, think through desire. What would make me happy and holy in Jesus? What would following him, even if it's a hard thing, over time that following Jesus, even if it's a cross-bearing thing, even if it costs me a lot, will this grow me closer to Jesus and increase my joy in Jesus over time? Which brings us to this direction, God's will of direction. If you follow the decree and desire, you will at least be pointed in the right direction. You will have removed spiritually unhealthy options. You will have removed morally poor options. And you can come to a place where you're at least in the right sort of roads that you can pick from. And sometimes there's still many roads to pick from. Something like a job decision. And when you're pointed in the right direction, it's a good time to ask God and friends for help and wisdom, for discernment in this decision process. And it can be summarized like this. First, we know and obey the scriptures. Second, we seek wise counsel from the wise people that you know or know you and pray for God's help. And then go ahead and make that decision. Listen, when you have a big decision, you've learned the scriptures on this item, you've found desire on it. And then you start to ask the wisest people you know, why would you limit any meaningful decision to just your wisdom and life experience? If it's important, why would you not want help? I want help. And James 1 tells us that God loves giving us wisdom, and the New Testament is full of people receiving each other's counsel. If you're wondering if you should take such and such job, I would ask every wise person you know, and can talk with without getting fired. You may not have that relationship with your boss. So be careful, fam. Don't get fired. If you're wondering if you should date or marry such and such a person, 
then I would say have them around your friends as soon as possible and then ask your friends what they think. Ask an older couple around them what they think. One of the saddest moments when I was at the sending church at Sojourn, I had an older couple sit me down and they, they were kind of struggling. and go, hey, what's the matter? And like, man, we've been in this community group for three or four years and I've seen all these people struggle with getting married, struggle with their young children, struggle in these various life phases that we have lived and no one ever asks for help. And it bummed me out. I said, man, just start giving unsolicited advice and just get in there. If they're, if they're being ignorant to not ask, then just get in there. But I also sympathized with them and it broke my heart for an entire generation that thinks we know everything. That's part of being young. But we don't have to live that way. We don't have to live just on our wisdom. We can ask people's help. That's what humility is. That's a humble confidence move knowing I'm going home that I actually can take feedback in this life and it's okay, I won't die. And if I do die, things will be all right. You want to invite the wisest people you know to be near you in big decisions, not far away, especially people maybe a little ahead of you in whatever way. Then take their feedback, humbly acknowledge we don't know it all before God, pray for help, the Spirit is with us and in us to be guided towards that decision. And when you make that decision, trust that God loves you. Trust that you can trust this God, that Christ is not trying to trick you or scare you or frustrate you, but instead make you feel loved, confident, and increasing in wisdom and love with all those around you. Some of us make decisions far too quick. His name is Justin Carl. And I'm here today because I make major decisions in like 30 seconds, and I've had to grow up. Some of us make decisions too slow, like taking three years in the burrito line. Just pick one. They're all good. <laughs> but we can make, learn to make godly decisions with God that result in our praise to God. Because Paul actually mentions a second thing four times and ties it directly to this. He says, when you start to see the will of God rightly, you begin to praise God for his will. Look what it says. This is wild. It said, verse three, blessed. So when, we, when God blesses us, it's from higher to lower. It's giving favor and goodness and mercy to us. But when we bless God, it's from the lower to the higher. We're giving praise and worship to God. So praise be to God, our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, until we acquire possession of it, our inheritance, to the praise of his glory, church. And so here's the deal. What would it be like to know you have a future with God? To not let the fear of death win. To know it's the will of God that you wind up in that future. So in the biggest decisions, God has worked mightily, salvation, that you can have confidence in the littler decisions to live wisely before God and his scriptures, live wisely with others, and then learn to praise him for it. Have you ever worshiped God for his will? Have you ever worshiped him just running through a catalog of thankfulness for everything in your life? Maybe start as a kid and just work up to your current age. 
When I'm up here praising God, I literally just start rolling through a catalog of praising God for everything I'm thankful for in my life. Some say the original sin is a lack of thankfulness. They traded the truth of God for a lie, were no longer thankful for what God had done, and picked the devil's way. If you want to pick the Lord's way, give him thanks for his will. Whether it's a hard thing or a good thing, you can still praise God because his goodness has not changed to you. That was settled on a cross. Jesus resurrected to our hope that we too will be resurrected. You don't have to fear death. You have a hope and a future in Christ. You can give praise for his will and learn to live it with great confidence. And even when things don't work out, you'll just learn lessons. If the worst thing that could happen is we die, then we're going to be okay because we have a hope and a future. Let's apply what Paul's saying and worship wildly before God. Worship with our body. Worship with our voice, your heart, your mind. doesn't matter if you like the song, love the song, perfect song. Some of these songs, we are right in the zone. It's easy to worship. But what if you lifted your heart up, say, Lord, I praise you for your will in my life. I'm going to let go of being mad at you or acting like you're holding out or tricking me because that's just not true. God has been good to us in Jesus Christ, and we're heading home 